Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Micton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, ASA for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now on to the episode. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Today I'm here with John Mixon, as always, and we're delighted to have Ewan McIntosh um, on the call. Ewan, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for inviting me along. Ewan's, uh, I think most of you probably already know, he runs uh, Notosh, um, sort of an expert in school change, design thinking, and many other areas. So uh, John arranged Ewan to come on, which is fantastic. I know, John, you've worked together with Ewan quite a bit. And uh, I'm keen to learn about your background and, and also what, you know, John's got a few other things to focus on in terms of, you know, change in, in the COVID times. So it should be good. I'm looking forward so, to seeing it. So, so you and maybe tell us a bit about, you know, give us a context of a bit of your professional journey because it, it's quite uh, eclectic. And I think it'd be interesting for people to hear because you're actually an educator by trade. Originally, yes. Um, I don't know if it's eclectic or just meandering and indecisive, but um, I started out as a teacher and had done everything to resist becoming a teacher because I'm from one of those families where everyone's a teacher. So it was the last thing I wanted to do. Um, I went as far as trying to join the army, um, failed at that, tried to become a spy, failed at that, um, and ended up thinking maybe I should become a teacher after all. And so I taught in France at university level um, for a couple of years came back home because the teaching profession in Scotland had really been professionalized at that point. It was, it had gone from being a, a very low paid, undervalued job um, that that I remember my parents getting, you know, phone calls from the bank manager every month, that kind of thing, to being a job that would earn enough to at least pay your rent and respect a little bit more respect perhaps, but more, more professionalism to introduce. So I went back to Scotland to take advantage of that. Um, really enjoyed teacher training started um, my teacher placements in, in, to put it bluntly, very tough schools, but found that I had a natural affinity with um, kids who didn't want to be there. And when I ended up uh, teaching in the east coast of Scotland, um, I had a few successful years really engaging kids who would otherwise have been told French and German isn't for you. Those were my subjects at high school. And they all overperformed. They all did better than anyone thought they could do. Um, and so, I, you know, as always happens, if you're any good, you get plucked out of the classroom. And I got put um, in, a, in a government office. And for three years, we created some really great projects back in my old manor uh, with, uh, in, in the district where I worked in particular. We managed to really create a swift change across 45 schools that saw teachers collaborating more, really upping their, their game, upping their practice. And it had a rub off effect on the, the results of young people and their performance, particularly at secondary, but notably in the early years as well. And um, in that third year working for the government, I was in my late twenties. So I didn't teach in the classroom for, for more than, you know, I was six, seven years in classrooms. And in that seventh year, I was just getting told no a lot by grey-haired men in grey suits. No, you can't do this. No, it's not possible. And I got really fed up and despondent. And I went looking elsewhere. 
I left education. I went off to work for Channel 4 Television as a commissioner, which has nothing to do with education, investing in digital products, um, getting to understand how creative people work, what their process was. And it was during that, it was a two-year commission. Um, so you're, you're kind of in and out. You're, you, you get a two-year commission, so you take as many risks as possible without fear of getting uh, fired. We did some amazing public service broadcasting and online programs and mobile things. But I had a burning passion, which was how on earth can I help the world of education speak in the same way about their work and as passionately about their work as these creative people do when they're building the next program or the next web app. And so No Tosh was created to cut through the crap that people talked around education policy and speak in plain English about how you make change happen. And for the last 12 years, that's what I and my team have been doing. And talk a bit about this idea that the, 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 the crap, you know, what was it in your personal experience? You got a lot of no's from the gray haired men. Mm -hmm. I'm gray haired, so I must be in that category. You were getting these no's and you were getting frustrated, but maybe be a little more granular about what you think you wanted to push. And they were like, no, we can't do that. What I learned was uh, actually it had nothing to do with what I was pushing. And I think that, that that's probably a, quite a, a, a good life lesson to take on board for anyone who's got an idea. The problem with having ideas is you hold on really tightly to them and they're like children, so you will never have a bad word said about them. But most ideas are not great the first time that you air them. So the chances are most of the time people are going to say, nah, it's not for me. So that's, that was one thing. And I learned that later when I was at Channel 4. Um, actually, I've got a book right here on my bookshelf that was seminal. So I bought this and read it over a weekend, Persuasion uh, by uh, Borg, James Borg. If you want to convince anyone of anything, that's not a bad starting point. And I went in um, having been told no, actually, at Channel 4 for some investments I wanted to make. Um, I went back the, the following Tuesday up at four o'clock to get my flight down to London, go to the investment meeting, and I got every one of my projects invested in. And I realized that actually the, it was the same idea that got rejected the week before, but uh, the way that you bring people on board is hugely important. So some of the ventures that were knocked back were things, very simple things like um, uh, a user-built magazine for teachers to talk about practice they were attempting in their classrooms. It was not back because how would we know if the practice was any good? Um, we're, we're, the, we're a government agency. We should be promoting quality. How do we quality assess it? My view was that actually teachers are smarter in the you know, as, a, as a collective than any number of grey-haired men or women in suits. Um, and that the, the wheat and chaff would be sorted out quite naturally. But I never got beyond pitch phase because it was just a step too far for state government officials. Another thing that made me um, really unpopular was critiquing the, um, you know, 35 million pound uh, on the low end, 120 million on the high end spend on a national intranet. This is 2007, 2008, and I couldn't imagine something more benign than a network encouraged to help Scottish kids and teachers look inward. This is a when you know MySpace had already died by that point, Bebo was booming, if you remember that. Um, most of the kids I'd been teaching 
were online. Remember, in Scotland and Ireland, we had about 95% penetration rate of Bebo in 12 plus kids. So that means pretty much every kid I was teaching socially networked already and expecting to go out in the world. And they had zero slash zilch guidance on how to do that in a responsible way. So the third thing that I did that was actually successful was um, national guidance on mobile telephone use in the classroom. And I didn't take it to the government, I took it to the teaching unions and they loved it and they endorsed it. And to this day, it's still the policy nationally here. So you'll see mobile phones on desks, but face down, ready for use in the classroom in most schools, bar some of the private ones. You and I've got a question that is really good points. I, I like, you know, what you said about when you've got ideas, people will generally sort of poo-poo them. And actually, I, I was going to order that book, Persuasion. I, I will do that. But I'm curious if you've got any mental models because sometimes, you know, people will, will poo-poo your ideas and you just got to go through and push ahead and do it. But sometimes yeah. you just have a bad idea, you know, and it needs it needs feedback. Is, is there some way of like you, you used to sort of analyze, you know, cause all the, and there's the in-between phase where it's a good idea, but it needs modifying, you know, a little bit. Yeah, I mean the, the the mental models. Yes, you could you could do a, a pre mortem. I've done them many times with John actually and his teams, which is where you just ask the question on the simplest level: what is going to kill this idea? And so you yeah. start looking through in a more complex way. There's a, a model we call the uh, dilemma dance, and uh, we've actually got a, a link on our lab, I think, or somewhere online on our media magazine, and we can maybe pop that in your show notes, where you go through. Uh, five different phases of the pre-mortem. The first is asking, uh, I like this idea. What do I like about this idea? And the idea is made up not just of, it's not an idea, not one thing. An idea is uh, something that communicates a message to other people and changes people's behavior normally. And yeah. what you have to work out is how do I want people to change their mind about something? The idea might be rubbish, but underpinning it is a notion that people could behave differently. Um, and how you go about doing it, that's the idea, and that could change. Once you're really clear on what, why on earth this is important, why this change of mindset, why this change in behavior is important, you can hold your idea a little bit more lightly because the idea is just the the, the pin carrier, uh, message carrier. It's not the actual thing. Then you go and do the same with the opposition. So you picture your enemy, and it helps to have an enemy. It, it doesn't have to be a person. It can actually be a, a mindset. So maybe the, the enemy is, um, I don't have time to do this. I'm too busy teaching. Um, so there I'm looking at what values are important to them. Young people's experience, they want to be there for their students first and foremost. What else is important to that teacher? Um, curriculum coverage. They're probably stressed out their bonnet uh, thinking about how to cover curriculum. They've got too much content they think to get through. So there's a degree of uh, maybe another value they have is the... Um, uh, stress to make sure that they, they give students everything they need to succeed. So I've got a whole bunch of values that matter to them. And then what I try and do is predict the arguments they'll come to me with. And then I use those arguments in a fourth movement to work out what compromises am I not prepared to, to go through. So for example, I'm not prepared to take this agenda and just make it an opt-in after school, if you want to come thing, where I have to Supply people with coffee, cake, or booze to get them to show up. I'm not prepared to do that because this idea is so central to their, to the quality of the learning experience. But being being so important for the quality of learning experience, maybe I can create a an, an eagle idea, as we call it, and that's the fifth movement, which picks up on that value. They really care about the experience of young people, 
and it picks up on my message, which is, for example, to pick John's thing, you know, um, uh, online note-taking can be more powerful than doing it in paper because you can be collaborative about it. And I'm going to go and team teach with them. I'm going to take on the, the weight of knowing how to do this initially. I'm going to invest my time team teaching with the most negative, never going to do it teacher I can find because when they see the potential of it, they're going to tell all their friends in the corridor and then I have to pay to change in the school. And it doesn't matter whether you're a teacher or a leader doing that in one corridor, in a department, in a grade level, in a division, in a whole school, or across a whole country. It's the same approach. And we're doing that in Scotland at the moment across the whole country in terms of trying to help more teachers understand how to create much more quality interdisciplinary experiences where teachers are planning together, teaching together, and the hard one, assessing together. Um, mm -hmm. You don't do that by giving people abstract bullet points and checklists and accreditation standards you do that through storytelling and ideally the stories are told by people that look like them in the same job who made it work that's a great model and so you and one of the things that i've really had the privilege and honor is watching you and also participating in a lot of work that you do with schools and you have this design thinking and often you come to schools and schools are kind of they have a mission that feels you know it's on on the wall but it's not in the in the blood of the organization and what you do so nicely is really unpack that and kind of challenge schools to think what they're really about and then there's a, a process that goes through tell me tell us a bit about how do you pick schools? I mean, schools come to you. Do you ever say to a school, sorry, no, because you also need a certain level of assurance that they're going to engage within the context that you've created for you to be able to attain that goal, which is get their mission values. And so talk us a bit about how do you filter schools? Because I'm sure you get a lot of schools writing to you, but and you only yeah. have so much time in the day. You very likely have some criterias or some uh, mindsets or dispositions that you engage with before you say yes? Can you talk a bit about some of those? I think the easiest one, the easiest no-no is where people have their own process that they want to follow come hell or high water. And then you do ask yourself why on earth you need us if, if you're so sure that you've got the right idea. Um, that happens a couple of times. Um, they, so that happens when they give you a pro format to fill out tell us what you'll do for each of these stages. We just don't respond. <laughs> because the reason that you would pay someone anything is because maybe they've done it a little bit more often. And you know, we've, we've done strategy work, which is everything from the purpose statement and values of a school through to full-blown strategy for the next year, through to strategy for five years. We're on a project at the moment, which is a 20-year strategy for a whole country. Um, you, you know, the, we, we've, the, in the last two years, done this kind of work in 76 countries so we've done more strategy in a year and a half in two years say than the average super duper superintendent will have done in a lifetime so we do know what we're talking about and there's a the reason hopefully people get in touch the second so yeah don't don't micromanage your um don't micromanage your team and so don't micromanage your partners as well your your people you you have come in that's probably top advice for anyone thinking of procuring that the second big one is school boards who just don't understand what they're there to do um and they fall into kind of three big categories one is complete disinterest 
uh, until the final moment when they see the options in front of them, then they get interested and want to change everything. Um, so we try and avoid that by making friends with board chairs very early and getting them in. Uh, second challenge is over enthusiasm, where they want to do they want to do the strategy. And boards have been told by um, consultants who've been around longer than me, but maybe haven't um, got the right end of the stick when it comes to strategy. Boards have been told that strategy is theirs. It's not true. Strategy is the CEO's job and the leadership team's job. And actually it's the job of every middle leader in a school too. There are in a school, say school of Luxembourg size, you probably have in the region of 70 leaders who all need to own strategy and understand how it works. And their work pale, you know, pales the board's work into all, not insignificance, but without the, without the complicity of the leadership team, you don't have a strategy that's going to work. You've got a piece of paper that the board approved. So the board have to understand that, the, the yes, they have a say, but really the say of the board is in approving or not approving or giving critical friendship on the choices the leadership team are presenting to them. Leadership should be presenting choices to a board, not a document which says there's a strategy, approve it or not. So give choices and let the board take those choices, but the leadership team should be happy with either choice that they're presenting. The third type of board um, is a board that is um, keen to participate, doesn't really know how, isn't afraid to admit they don't know how, and want to uh, play ball with a process that they've maybe never come across. And I'm lucky that 95% of the school boards we work with fall in that category. And so generally we'll, we'll get them you know, involved from the start with the leadership team. Sometimes it's the first time they've sat in the same room, virtually or not. You know, We'll meet them midway through to show them what we're thinking, give them a heads up on what's coming up in a learning meeting. So by the time we get to that third session and we're trying to approve it, there are no surprises. They understand where everything's come from. And... Um, all of this is important for getting things approved. Uh, to actually create a good strategy, you need everyone in the community involved. Everyone needs to be able to feel that their voice was heard, and everyone needs to feel that um, they can hear their voice and what comes out. That doesn't mean every idea they suggest taken on board it means that the those values I talked about earlier come shining through. So if you take a school like the American International School in Johannesburg, we went through over 5,000 lines of interview data that a design team we had asked the school to set up had carried out. And that design team has kids, teachers, non-teaching staff, parents, a couple of board members, leadership team members. It numbers about 25 people. And they generated 5,000 lines of interview data. We had 526 survey responses. We had 149 Miro.com boards full of data that had been gathered by the community, segmented by the group. So we kind of knew which voices from which cohort were saying certain things. We had 43 small group listening sessions with the incredible director at the school, Jeremy, who really went out of his way to listen, and 18 hours of interviews that my team did with their senior leadership team to dig deep. That's a heck of a lot of listening. And our craft is summarizing that in a way that shows the two or three things the leadership team should focus on. And they, when you get it right, you share that back to the community and they say, thank goodness, we're doing so much and all we want to do is do two or three things really well. And there they are.
So it's really a kind of, uh, you're going to collect all these stories. You always talk about stories and earlier on as you were describing some of your work, it's about these narratives that everybody shares from their perspective and from where they're yeah. sitting and then aggregating them into a bigger story, but a more maybe focused story because all these different stories might be disconnected in some ways. I mean, there is the arc of the school, but it sounds like one of the things is you want to create that common story, that one voice. Yeah, and I think that that one voice needs to, that's a, the challenging part, that one voice needs to be a voice that everyone recognizes. So if you picture the community in Johannesburg, there are local staff living in very different conditions, maybe to the international staff and certainly to the parents and, and kids in the school. So finding that common voice is not, easy and we, that's where the, the design team's role in designing is probably one of listening but we also use as critical friends to see whether we're on the mark bearing in mind we're sat here in the city of edinburgh often thousands of miles away physically and contextually from the the group that we're working with so it's really important to to have that touch point with people on the ground to understand whether it resonates or not and that's why having a purpose statement writ large on a wall is one thing but what distresses me is when people do that with the future vision of the school if you have a vision that is indelibly kind of brass plated somewhere then that's a story that no one can mess with and the fact is the vision's going to change something's going to crop up no one had a pandemic on their cards but it did and then if you're if you're beholden onto the vision that you created in december 2019 because you painted it in bright red paint on the front wall then you're you're giving yourself an unnecessary um you're you're hamstrung unnecessarily because you you can't change the story behind it whereas think of vision more like fairy tales fairy tales before Charles Perrault wrote them all down fairy tales were told and you I would tell you a story you would tell Dan a story by the time Dan tells his family the story it's completely changed the ending's better more gruesome probably um, or maybe it's a happy ending which is what Disney chose because oh, the kids won't cope with Charles Perrault uh, so he made everything happy and everyone got married and went off into the sunset um, that's the nature of stories that's the nature of vision and that's what we try to help schools do culturally it just becomes storytellers about the progress they're making while at the same time giving the board what they need, which is, did they do a good one or not? So how do you measure success when things are a little bit more fluid? And that's a, as an area I think we are still learning a great deal on, but we're seeing, again, some success. So, so you mentioned the pandemic. Nobody really had a playbook for the pandemic. And I know during the pandemic, you travel a lot, you, and you're all over the world, oh. and suddenly you weren't traveling. And you actually uh, generated a really interesting white paper. And I think I would like you to talk a bit about that because I had the pri yeah. privilege of being in a group where you presented it. And then based on that, I want to kind of explore that further. So talk a bit about suddenly you're not traveling anymore. And yeah. I don't know, did you have more time or did you just no. <laughs> So I went from, yeah, I went from 200,000 miles a year to none. Um, very quickly. More importantly, from my perspective, I had a team of people whose mortgages and food that the company helps pay for, and we lost 85 to 90% of our customers within 10 days. So I was kind of stressed, um, as you can imagine. I had a fantastic project with um, the International School of Kuala Lumpur, and Rami Madani, who's one of my heroes, kept us going on it. 
until the end of June. So in a way, I was really busy. They got good value out of us because I, I was head down working on this incredible project for them, which will come to fruition at some point. But um, I got to the month of June, really having slugged it out. And I think that's where I had my little PTSD moment where I suddenly thought, um, we're probably okay until October, but I'm not sure after that. So we made a wee bit of a plan. We made our, we did our, we did our own work. The stuff we always did in other people, we did to ourselves again, and we reinvented everything we did. So we reinvented the way that we work online for the irony of ironies, school space design. So we've actually undertaken some of the work I'm proudest of in learning environment design without having moved from behind our desks. Um, we undertook um, a different approach to leadership, which had been a little bit ad hoc, and it was based around senior leaders catching time with us when we flew over to to do something else. So it's like, you know, can we go for a drink or can we have an hour? And it was very happenstance, not very well structured, but we felt we had a ton of experience and expertise to share, particularly in middle leadership. So I, um, we set out that summer to build the world's best middle leaders program. And I think we've done that. Um, and we've got, we just launched this week with 228 middle leaders uh, in our second cohort. Uh, learning through a three-month, really intense, really good fun program. And I, all of this experience over the summer led me to the concept of transition design, which is uh, was about the environment. And I'd read about it as, part of, as being part of the environment. How do we make our um, environment better when we can't see the destruction that's actually going on? You know, climate change in a way is... Although it's fast, it's still too slow for most of us to pick up any sense of urgency. And so we don't do so much about it. Um, whereas what we had just had happen to us was an incredibly swift, almost instant change, a shock. Um, and the when you get those shocks, you can do one of two things. You can knee jerk it, which can lead to very rash decisions um, in the moment, or you can design your way out of it. And that's what transition design is about. We applied, it fits beautifully with design thinking work. We created an online program to see if we could do it. And you were a, a, an incredibly helpful pivot in the part in that, that because uh, you and your colleagues who joined were supporting our work and helping us get at least to Christmas um, without having to let anyone go. And we were able to experiment with online learning. I think we got really good at it by the end of that experience, ready to launch in 2021 with a raft of things. Um, the, the transition design for schools, I think that, that point of um, October to December 2020 was probably the only time where every school on the planet was probably feeling the same, feeling the same pinch. Uncertainty about whether they were going to have to go into a hybrid or all at home uh, learning scenario. Uncertainty about what on earth things would look like even when students returned to campus. There was just a smell in the air of a vaccine. I wasn't sure how that would actually pan out. And it, people were saying it would take seven years for everyone to get vaccinated. So although it was massively uncertain, it was a real security knowing that everyone in that room, everyone we were having conversations with was at the same point. What we've learned since then, I think that the change around Easter this year, April, May this year in 2021, is that you have multiple speeds now of where people are at, which means transition design may no longer be important for some schools, not because they nailed it, but because they ran back to what they had before. 
Mm. And because they went back to what they had before, their institutional memory 2020 is going to be so vague. They're, they're going to do what you always do when you have a bad memory. You push it out. And that's how humans survive. We're really good at pushing out bad memories. So you can never learn from them unless you design the process to learn from those experiences. So while some of the teachers listening to this may teach in countries where they are online still, and they feel oh, it's so frustrating. I've got colleagues in the States or in Europe heading back to work. Don't get frustrated. Look at it as a gift because you're feeling a pain that everyone else has forgotten. And you can design better knowing what that feels like than anyone who's going back to the comfort of the old ways. Case in point is that of the 225 odd people signed up for this cohort that we're running of our leadership program, whereas uh, in winter time last year, we would have maybe seen 90% attendance at our live sessions. Now it's more like 30 or 40%, not because people are not wanting to attend, because they're in a timetable and it's so rigid they can't escape from it. No one reinvented their timetables. No one rethought interdisciplinary learning and how we could bring projects more to the fore as, as, as kids have done when they were at home. No one has actually done any seismic work on how you help pupils uh, really build on their passions or teachers for that matter it's an opportunity lost as my view and uh, not lost for everyone but there's a scope for innovation for those people who may feel that their their part of the world isn't quite there yet don't don't moan about it get innovating because you might be the people who leapfrog the rest of us and I, it's really interesting how you talk about this idea that we all had this collective experience. We were all on the same boat as an analogy. And very likely, as you said, that was the first time that schools were all experiencing things in unison. And you were in many of the meetings at AIE. I mean, we were all floating around Zoom rooms around the globe in those conversations. But what's interesting is I'm wondering what was the rationale for some people to run back because the narrative was like, there is no new normal. Uh, this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a lot of narratives about don't do that, but what were some of the pressures that people suddenly said, you know what, I'm gonna go back to normal. I think one of the best problems is actually the quality of the storytelling around that new uh, narrative. Um, new normal became jargon within hours. To the point that if you said new normal to someone, they would roll their eyes and stop listening. So all those stories about the new normal, exciting as they might have been for the teller of those stories, were completely irrelevant for the vast majority of people who were frankly fed up and just wanted to get some sense of normality. So someone banging on about new normal and doing, go away, you know, let's get our, let's get our jabs and let's get back to normal. That's what it offers. The political rhetoric that you would hear in the television or on the lunchtime briefings on the radio is about Let's regain some sense of normality. Um, politics and policy talks about recovery programs in North America and all across Europe. So recovery implies you were broken, but we'll get you back to where you were. No one was talking about building something new. There's zero interest in building something new because the interest of the people taking the decisions is in getting back to normal. So the people who really innovated have been those who maybe innovated through the crisis, who generated their long-term planning through the crisis. And we had a few of those come in. For example, this week, um, it was just such a delight in Romania to see Colina Nua Learning Centre launch. This is a learning centre born 
in March 2020 on a Zoom call and worked on every week through this year to the point of opening up with real live children and a beautiful environment for them to learn in. A school where we felt actually there needs to be a dual curriculum, one for the adults as well as one for the children, given that kids spend 92% of their time away from the school building. So um, I, that's a revolution, I think. That's, that's probably the project that's had the highest uh, reaction from any, anything that we've ever done. And yet it felt quite easy to do because we didn't have any stuff to build on. We didn't have to keep anything from before because we had nothing to build it on. Um, we have had other schools, really well-known international schools, who thought about strategy um, this, this year, and they went for what I would call the safe option. So they went with very familiar faces in the school strategy design process that talk about, you know, you've got to get your mission, you've got to get your goals, and then you've got to create your plans from it and your checklists, and we're going to use red, amber, greens on it. You know, um, I don't need to name names because everyone knows these processes and who purports to, who pushes them it's tosh in the true definition of the word because all they were doing was masking over the opportunity that was in front of them to do something risky and to to give it a go it was difficult to do anything risky over the past year and a half the riskiest thing to do was lose the opportunity by not picking it up and trying and ranto <laughs> <laughs> so if a, let's just imagine I'm a school or I'm a community and I've kind of rolled my eyes at the new normal or I have been proponent of that narrative, what mm. would you say to schools that maybe played the new normal card too much and now realize it's backfired? Can you regain? You have to reframe that. That's on what I'm hearing yeah. is that you have to reframe it. What does that reframing maybe look like? And not only for schools, because I think of Dan, who's in entrepreneurship and his company, and a lot of companies talked about new normal. I don't think it was only in the school context. And I think Dan yeah. felt also what you felt. You know, Dan travels a lot, everything, all these face to face conferences disappeared. So what was the re what is the recalibration people have to do not only with the language but also maybe the behavior? Let's start with the behavior because I think behavior informs your language. And um, I would always say go, go and listen again. Go and ask people, how is this working for you? There's no point pushing a new normal or pushing a new idea if actually people are happy with the way things are. So that's the first assumption is that, that the old way is wrong. And I've, I've made the assumption. So the first assumption is that old way of doing things is wrong. So let's go and check that out. Let's go and ask, start with teachers, start with middle leaders and ask them, how is this working for you? What's working well? What do you want to do more of? So we, the easiest way to think of it is amplify, change or ditch. So what's working well, let's do more of it. What's not working well, let's change it. What is flipping disastrous, let's ditch it. And just go and ask those three questions to your to your teams. Don't do it in a survey, for goodness sake. And I've seen that so much this year. I mean, I know we're all we've all been online, but if I have another survey asking me my view, I might I might throw myself out the window. Go and speak because it's what people say, not what they check in a box that's interesting. Gather all that data together, and that will give you a picture of your starting point. And if the starting point says, um, I don't want to change anything, I'm content. Well, first of all, I'd be really surprised. I don't know that many teachers who are content at the moment. I feel like I've never worked harder in my life, and I know every teacher I'm talking to feels the same. They are working harder than they worked in November 2019. That makes no sense. And they're doing it with a face mask on. 
So I just don't believe that going back to normal was a great idea. I don't think there'll be a teacher on the planet who says, yeah, happy, hunky-go-dory. No, go and ask. And then I think the answers come from that quite quickly. You need to synthesize. And synthesize synthesizing stuff is a skill and it takes practice. So if you're no good at it, go and buy some help in. That's what firms like us do. There's loads of people do it. Maybe you've got members on your staff team who are particularly talented at spotting the dots, at which ones to connect. But you've got to synthesize all that data, even though it might seem like a mountain. Um, use technology to do it if you want. You can put things on Miro.com, you can download it as a spreadsheet, and then you can word cloud it, see what themes are coming out, and then dive into the stories uh, with a quick word search, dive into the stories that represent those keywords and see what people were actually saying. Then go back to those people and pick up the conversation, see if they have ideas. Run an ideation session at lunchtime on a really specific uh, challenge that you've uncovered. Uh, the main challenge I've got with teachers at the moment is that they do feel we don't have enough time to plan together. We've got so much uh, contact time with our students that we don't have time to plan with other colleagues. And they miss it because they had loads of time when they were more flexibly working. And that would be an urgent position. And I wouldn't wait until August 2022 before changing a timetable. I would actually experiment with timetable changes early as October, November to try and make sure that teachers have more opportunities to see each other teach and plan together. Um, and the other the other key piece of advice, just tied that, don't use the school year as your unit of change. There's no reason why everything would need to take nine months or 12. So what can you achieve in nine weeks? And I think people underestimate what they can do in nine weeks and they overestimate what they'll achieve in a year. So nine week chunks equi is equivalent to a term and then you've got a little bit of rest time to consolidate, think through what you want to do next, and then at it again. And I think one of the, the best examples of schools kicking off that way is the American School of Warsaw, where we've had incredibly high uptake from teachers, middle leaders, non-promoted and promoted members of staff wanting to take on a project, use their own discretionary effort, and a 45-minute meeting a week to, to coordinate to make stuff happen. And, and they've they've gained a great deal out of it very quickly. And so this, what I'm hearing is that the if you make that connection with your community and there's the intrinsic motivation and they have ownership, then it almost is a self-starter. It almost goes off on its own. That's right. And, and you need to give a frame for it. You need to give them a rule or two to work by. You need to give them support. The, the role of a senior leader, maybe listening to this, is not to do the work for them. It's to remove hurdles primarily. So if you spot the challenge that's going to get in their way, take it out if you can. It's to support them if they need time, if they need cash, if they need um, help, offer it. Um, but don't do the work for the team. And, and that's a shift. A lot of senior leaders have actually been doing a lot of the work of middle leadership for the last 18 months trying to, as they put it, protect the middle leadership teams. Your middle le leadership teams don't want protected. They want to do their job, but they need to have some simple tools to do that. Yeah, and I think in, in the context of the pandemic, a lot of leaders felt, I need to do everything. I need to jump on all the swords so everybody is going to think that everything's okay and I don't want you to feel any pain. And I think in some ways that spoon feeding backfired. Yeah, rule number one, and anyone who has flown anywhere knows this, put on your own life mask before helping others, your own oxygen mask before helping others, or put on your own life vest when you're on the boat. You know, you 
you even your child is cute they will be dead unless you make sure that you're safe first so you got to make sure that you look after yourself first then you're in a better position to help other people and i think that senior leaders this year did the entire opposite of that they were it, it was her heroism and it doesn't work and it's macho and it doesn't need to be like that it's kind of the savior thing of the triangle you know i'm going to save because there are victims and predators everywhere that's right and the more weary i look and the more stubble that i can grow and you know and that's just the you know that's just the female directors you know, no i mean it's just it's all machismo that um backfires it might look like you're being selfless but actually it looks like you're out of control what we need is <laughs> who are capable of um, holding the reins and giving really clear direction to people about what they need to deliver on without telling them how to do it. Yeah. Ewan, when you think of your own journey over these last you know, two years and, and significant changes and, and creative tensions that you've engaged, you've what I've thought so fascinating, you looked inward as an organization and said, we need to restructure and we need to reinvent ourselves in some ways. Mm -hmm. What would you say from just an observer point of view have been some of the silver linings that have really excited you that you maybe didn't anticipate? Because you work with so many school leaders in so many different contexts. So you're hearing all these stories. Are there just a couple that you think you really have maybe changed your perception and maybe you've taken mm -hmm. and recalibrated because of those silver linings that you've witnessed or listened to? So some, some of these changes I know are not reactive because we started making them in November, December 2019. I had, had um, in November, I had one trip, one trip that was 68,000 miles long. And um, fascinating, you know, in, in, exciting and exhausting. And so I made some changes immediately, more or less there, around um, how we would do business. And I, I did not want to give schools permission to put pressure on a team to show up for two days to do something when the thing that we're asking would be better delivered is eight distinct hours over eight weeks with the team doing thinking in between times and so we'd already started to explore how do we do coaching we, we'd thought about leadership coaching as a way to start that process um Another thing was actually in our own team, relationships are, are so important. We're a tiny team um, and we got smaller, but not because of the pandemic. We got smaller, um, we, we shed some, some staff we, uh, but in January uh, 2020 because we wanted to make sure that we had the right mix of people to do the kind of work that we were going to be doing in the future. And that as a team, we could get on like family because if we were going to be doing that, we we're going to be in each other's pockets a lot more than 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 ever. We had some natural um, uh, people, and I think this happened to a lot of people over the pandemic. People rethinking what they wanted to do. So one of our team went back to university uh, to do the film degree she'd always wanted to do. Another went back to school. Had a couple go back to school because they really missed the camaraderie, and they've chosen to go back to school at what might possibly be the most difficult time to teach in a school. So. We've, we've had some of that um, kind of natural movement that started, whether there was a crisis or not, I think that that would have happened. What did I learn? I learned that human connection within your own team is above all important, that it's not the client is, and this is gonna sound really uh, shocking maybe, but the client is not right every time. Uh, and the client does not come first. Our team comes first, because if my team, 
comes first and they know what they are doing and they are delighted to be doing it and they are confident in what they are doing, the client will benefit, come what may. If we say that the client's right and the client comes first every time, then we're bending over backwards to fit in with things that might just be wrong. And so we've grown courage, I think, over the last two years in, in saying, no, you, you know what? A decade in, we do know what we're doing in these things and we know what works best. So please follow it or go and hire someone else. And we've off, we've given a couple of jobs to our competitors because we knew that it would take up all our time and bring us no joy. And uh, better our competitors have that than, than us. So I think that there's maybe a lesson there for how you look at running school. Look I think it's really interesting the client is not always right because I think uh, I was in customer service in the US with a bunch of media companies and that was drilled into me and I remember there were some clients that we worked far too hard for and it was like this is yeah and, I, and wish, so it's I, wish it my, I wish it were my line it's not even mine um, I'm really inspired by by people from all sorts of walks of life this one again, the famous book chef off camera this one is from Danny Mayer who wrote Setting the Table. It's probably one of the best business books you could ever read um, if you're a leader of anything. And if you like food, so much the better because he's the founder of the Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe, and Shake Shack, depending on your socioeconomic group. One of those will appeal to you. Um, and in it, he's really clear. He defines a few things that I think help schools really well. One, uh, the, customer is, the customer does not come first. Uh, the staff do. Uh, his, his, and if you've ever been to a crappy restaurant you know that the staff are the problem if the staff are not enjoying their job you will not enjoy your dinner and um, you can actually go to a place with quite mediocre food but the staff make you come back and back and back again um, or it can have the most narrow limited menu on the planet with food that you would never choose to eat but you'll still go because you're going to get a certain greeting and the second thing connected to that is a sense of hospitality Hospitality is when you step into a restaurant, even for the first time, and you feel it's yours. Schools should be doing that every day, and they manage to fail at it every day with parents. Parents often don't feel the school's theirs. If they walk in, maybe the smell even gives them a frisson of, of, of their school days. How can you create an environment where students, parents, teachers alike all feel that it's their school, that they own it? And that's hospitality. That's about understanding what it takes interpersonally to make people feel at home. And he hires his staff 51% on their ability to understand hospitality and make people feel good and 49% on technical skill. Because the technical skill you can train, but that hospitality, that kind of not being a complete psychopath, untrainable. You either got it or you don't. So look at your teams today as you sit having lunch in your staff room and just work out who would, who would you hire again because they're 51% there and who would you maybe give to a competitor? And then, you know, that, that might be something that informs hiring processes. Can you generate a sense of hospitality from the minute you meet someone? And if the answer is yes, then you can probably train the rest. I, I have this story that keeps staying in my head because when you were working with our school, you made this connection with our head chef. And, yes. uh, and, yeah. and he was quite a flamboyant character and he's now moved on. Actually, he's running a school for uh, disadvantaged children and teaching them how to cook. He retired. But uh, I always remember how you two really connected and you brought his narrative into the leadership team because I think, right. in, and I know you love food and, and, and you know, but it, maybe talk about that quote because I think 
that was we so were talking, powerful. We were talking about why, you know, I was actually with him and his boss in this massive European catering company. And I said, how come the food's so good? And the boss said in front of Pascal, he said, you know, Pascal's in at seven in the morning. That's why it's better here than anywhere else. Because if you arrive at seven in the morning and you're doing a slow roast, uh, you know, slow roast beef cheek or roti de boeuf or something like that, the, the clue is the word slow. It takes time. Otherwise, you end up with tough meat. So he's in at the crack of dawn so that the meat's not tough for the kids. Another colleague might choose to come in just shy of a living and whack it in a hot oven and it'll be cooked. And his point was, just parce que c'est cuit, ça veut pas dire que c'est bon. Just because it's cooked doesn't mean it's going to be good. And so the same is true, I think, with learning and teaching. Just because, you know, you're told, do PBL, don't go and do the fast food version of PBL with whatever you find first time round. Invest in it. Turn up early. Um, cook it. See, cook it for a long time before you say, I've nailed it. I think in teaching, I was guilty of this too. You think you're a great teacher after three years in the job. And then you get to your fifth year in the job looking back and you think, wow, I was really ropey three years in. In the last two years, I learned a ton. And by the time you get to seven, eight years, you're looking back saying, geez, when does this ever finish? And, you know, and then the self-doubt creeps in and then you become a head of school. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's the thing of um, reflecting on, you know, how am I cooking this? And does it actually taste good? Speak with learners, listen to what they say. How could it be even better? What do they love? What do they not love? That's what I always did as a teacher. And I bumped into a former pupil who I've not seen in 14 years last night when I was in a pub and the fatal words, hey, Mr. McIntosh, came out from behind a face mask. And we got talking and even, you know, 28 years old, he said, I loved French, loved it. Now, he didn't pursue it further, but he has really fond memories of that class and he had a passion for it. Um, and it's informed his creative life. He's a photographer now. I think we can all, uh, you know, that's, the only reason he loved it is because I always checked in to see what was appealing, what didn't appeal, cut back the things that didn't. I took time early on. And now it means it's easy because it's second nature. You can get more automatic with experience. But early on, younger teachers, you really have to invest a lot of time listening. Get your nose out of the planning sheets, out of your bloody computer, and go and spend some time talking with young people to find out what makes them tick. And then your class will benefit. Wonderful. Ewan, thank you so much. I just want to make sure people uh, know that they're the show notes. Ewan, could you put those two books in there? Because I think that would be a good point of reference. Uh, and uh, I really invite our audience to check out Notosh. Uh, Ewan has a wonderful blog and definitely follow him on Twitter. Uh, thank you so much, Dan. I don't know any, any thoughts or any follow-up questions before we wrap no, up. This was, a, this was a great interview for me. I didn't have to get involved, John. I was listening in, so I enjoyed it. I, I, got, I got the audience experience in this one, which was great. So, so. Ewan, thank you so much. People can find you on Twitter and, of course, at Notosh. And uh, don't forget that there's also this Middle Leaders course that you've uh, done and that's definitely something you might want to go and check out on the website but the show notes will have a lot of those things you and all the best with the year ahead and i hope that uh before long we can have another drink together face to face because it's been a long time one day one day thanks so much for the invitation it was great fun sharing see you yeah. soon take care